All right, I'm excited to dive into the Word with you this morning. It's this uh, time that uh, we devote to a teaching portion of our ministry. So if you will take your Bibles and find your way to Hebrews chapter 8, we begin a new chapter, uh, but not a new topic. We're in the midst of this wonderful description and explanation of of, uh, of Christ's royal priesthood, his, his kingly priesthood, and how wonderful it is, uh, and how it contrasts uh, to the uh, the kind of priesthood that the Levitical priest or Levitical order uh, had all throughout Israel's uh, history. Um, so we're excited to dive into that. Um, if you're there, then um, let me begin just with a, a few words of introduction. Um, actually, uh, many words of introduction. Yes, yes, you you knew that was coming. Since the start of chapter 7, the writer has been developing the point that Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. We know that. We've seen that. We've seen his arguments. Jesus is, is after the order of Melchizedek, he says, and the Levitical priesthood is after the order of Aaron. Now, for all the arguments that the writer has made so far for the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, including the ones that he will make in chapters 9 and 10 that we'll get to, Uh, in due course, I believe the foundation for all of them, the foundation for all of these arguments, is the common idea, uh, or is a common idea, that runs through them all. And it is something that has to do with heaven itself. Something that has to do with heaven. This is the idea that runs through all of the arguments. The the central question that chapter 8 answers that is what makes Jesus' priesthood better, turns on two heavenly realities. Like I say, this has to do with heaven. The first is in verses 1 to 5, and it has to do with the heavenly tabernacle. And the second is in verses 6 through 13, that's the rest of the chapter, and that has to do with a certain kind of covenant. Now, we have time this morning for only the first part of that chapter where we need to entertain this particular idea of a heavenly tabernacle. This is the heavenly reality uh, that I believe is is foundational to all of these arguments. Now, in preparation for this, this is where the introduction becomes lengthy, uh, I want to pull our exegetical lens back as wide as I possibly can, and I want to speak first rather generally, to the concept of heaven. Heaven, you say. Yes, that's right, heaven. The English word is, uh, or the origin of the English word, uh, is most likely from the German Himmel, although there is some uncertainty. Uh, That's the German word for sky. But the etymology is not as important to us as the meaning that the Bible gives to this idea of heaven. So whether we Christians use the title heaven or its synonyms like glory or the third heaven or eternity, kingdom of God, paradise, whatever whatever you want to use, we, we know what we mean. We know, for example, right out of the gate that the Bible defines heaven as a real place. It's a real place. Make no mistake about that. Heaven is not some abstract notion, some good idea or concept, or even a symbol uh, uh, for something desirable 
here on earth, a desirable condition. Oftentimes people use it that way, don't they? Oh, this is heavenly. Or this, is, this is heaven, this kind of thing. No, no, heaven is a real place. It's where God himself lives in unapproachable light, in perfect holiness, and he rules heaven. He rules heaven, and he rules his creation from heaven. And along with him, his angels, and all those who who truly belong to him in spirit form right now live there with God. There is a description of what heaven looks like or the celestial city in the middle of it in Revelation 21, you might remember. It's quite remarkable. It is built, this city, of the finest and most precious stones that we know of containing 12 gates, each made out of a single pearl. And the street of of the city is pure gold, like transparent glass, John says. The throne of God stands as the centerpiece of this city, with a river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, coming from it and flowing through the middle of its streets. Can you you picture this as as I read this description? There's a tree of life on either side of the river of life that is bearing its fruit in season that has healing properties. There are even dimensions listed for this city, huge dimensions for the New Jerusalem, for the length, for the width, for the height of it all. Now you might be wondering, well, where is this exactly? Where, where is heaven? Well, it's not at the outer limits of the universe, I can tell you that right now. It's not as if you could reach heaven and see God with your own eyes if you had a special rocket that you could take and go high enough past our solar system, through the Milky Way, take a ride at Alpha Centauri, and once you get past VG18, which is the farthest solar system from Earth, you'll find it positioned just on the edge of space. You can't miss it. Now, heaven is not located in the creation at all. It's outside of creation, in another realm completely. The same is true of hell. Now, some of the, in the course of history, were actually privileged to be taken there before their death. Like Enoch, for example. Genesis 5 records that God simply took him, with the implication in the text that it was in his life, not in death that God took Enoch. Then there's Elijah, who, we're told, boarded a flaming chariot drawn by two fiery horses that whisked him away out of sight of his servant Elijah. And just for the record, their removal to heaven was a good thing. It was a good thing. And that's because heaven is not only a real place, but it is the most desirable place that anyone can ever be. It is, in fact, the place to be when all is said and done. It is the ideal place. It's that place of rest, eternal bliss, and joy forevermore. There's no sin, no disease, no sickness, no pain, no more death, and no taxes. (laughs) If you are a true believer, one of Jesus' sheep, then When you go there, you will be outfitted with a heavenly body that is meant for heavenly living. You will enjoy the most intimate relationship imaginable with the the Lord Almighty. You will know all things perfectly and enjoy the Lord and worship him eternally 
you will have a place there that Jesus himself prepared especially for you. And you will receive rewards according to what you have accomplished for Christ during your your time on earth. You will receive a great inheritance. More than this, you will be a joint heir with Christ. And you will live with the Lord in the way that he always intended for his beloved to live with him. Always. From eternity, he has intended this. Heaven is really the place where everything wrong is in life is righted. Perfection characterizes heavenly existence. <clears throat> Heaven is obviously the place that everyone should want to be at the end of his or her earthly life, and that's certainly clear from our gospel message, isn't it? It is the longing of all who have been reconciled to God by the blood of Christ, as well as the culmination of a lifetime of Christian maturity. You know, because heaven is all of that and much more, heaven is as powerful a motivation as you can get for godly living. I want to spend a little more time with this and emphasize it. In addition to all these wonderful things about heaven, we know that heaven represents perfect order and love and peace and rest. It it represents God's holiness and purity, his majesty and sovereignty. It represents... All things new. It represents perfect justice and righteousness. It is where God, God's will emanates from. Before the, the word of God became flesh, John says, it was with God from the beginning and it was God. It represents truth, this heaven. It's no surprise, then, that the biblical writers refer to heaven as the great motivation for godly living and for perseverance through hardship and suffering and persecution. Think about some of those in the Bible that were given a glimpse of heaven during their earthly ministries. We can come up with a, a long list, perhaps. I can think of several, Moses, Elijah, we said already, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Stephen, Paul himself. The question is, why did God give these men glimpses of heaven? Do you ever wonder about that? Why did God give these men a glimpse of heaven? Well, it is because at the time they received it, they were in great need of encouragement. God properly motivated them with a a distant reality that would someday be theirs. It was... At a particular difficult time in Isaiah's life, when, when he saw God seated on his throne high and, and lifted up, Isaiah was steeped at the time in, in a tumultuous, in tumultuous political contexts and times. Enemies looming, foreign invasions imminent, de- uh, deportation likely. And to top it all off, his beloved king, Uzziah, had just died. So the nation was out with, without leadership. With all this uncertainty and the threat of Israel losing her land, her temple, even her national identity, Isaiah may have faltered in his faith if it weren't for the reminder of the fact that God is holy, quite in control of everything in Isaiah's small world and far beyond, and untouched by all of this national and global uncertainty and 
and chaos. So God gives Isaiah a glimpse of heaven where God is seated on his throne, high and lifted up, impervious to the goings-on in the world. And the point of the vision is this. If God is unmoved in his heaven by all that takes place on earth, then Isaiah has nothing to worry about. He must look beyond his immediate earthly context that he can see to heaven, God's kingdom, which he cannot see, but is his hope if he is to overcome insignificant worldly concerns. And he did. Ezekiel was also privileged to glimpse heaven. In chapter 1 of his book, he gives this lengthy description of heaven in his own terms. It's probably one of the longest in the Bible. Obviously, human language does not do justice to what Ezekiel saw, and, and language is quite limiting here, but he does his best to convey heavenly realities. And, and none of us, and he as well, had ever seen or known these realities, which makes it all the more difficult to describe in human language, much less to understand. Why did he receive this vision? Well, because the Lord was commissioning him as a prophet to speak truth to a rebellious people, now in exile. The basic message to them was, now you need to submit to your foreign captors, which would have been unheard of to a very zealous and nationalistic people like Israel. Repentance was too late. They were already there. It was time now to submit to those in authority over them. It would be a message that the people would not welcome, and they would persecute Ezekiel for it. But God said this to Ezekiel, You are not to fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence, since they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. And for that, Ezekiel was given a glimpse of heaven with wheels and wheels within the wheels, all symbolizing this idea of motion, where God is acting. He is active. He is not passive. And his will and his sovereignty will be meted out in human history. What a great encouragement for somebody with a message like this who had to preach to people who would not listen to him. Luke tells us Stephen as he was about to be stoned and become the first martyr of the Christian faith, was full of the Holy Spirit on that moment. As the record goes, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He says uh, exactly this, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why this vision? Well, there are several possibilities, several reasons why. One is that it was vindication for Stephen, that he was right to take a stand for the faith, which flew in the face of the religious establishment. So Jesus gives his approval in this vision. His stoning was most likely an execution by the Sanhedrin. So no doubt Stephen would have become a model of encouragement and tenacity in fighting the good fight. And this vision told him, that his stance for Jesus uh, had God's approval and pleasure. Another reason uh, might be that it was a verification for Stephen's message. 
which he just finished preaching on the truth claims of Christianity, and most importantly, that there was now a way to access to God that was more immediate and satisfying than the obsolete temple ritual could ever be. Well, those were fighting words, of course, which strongly taught, uh, it's strongly taught, by the way, in the book of Hebrews, as we've been, as we've been seeing. But without question, this glimpse of heaven helped him to stay calm and in control of himself as he faced off with death. At this very moment, his glimpse of Christ was a means of grace to keep Stephen strong. As F.F. F. Bruce puts it so well in his commentary on Acts at this point, quote, much more real to much more real to him in that moment than the angry gestures and cries of his enemies was the presence of Jesus at God's right hand, end quote. Then there is Daniel. Among the many visions that Daniel received was this one in chapter 7, you might remember, where he actually sees an interaction between God the Father and God the Son. He says, I kept looking, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Well, this vision caused Daniel actually great alarm until he received further consolation at the end of the book, that, would, that it would go well for him. All in all, though, God gave information to Daniel in a way that he did in order to strengthen his faith and spur him on to finish well. There was much on the national and global scenes that Daniel lived through that might have shaken him, so he receives reassurance that God is in control. His sovereign goodness will prevail. And let me say that that is really the purpose of apocalyptic literature. And much of apocalyptic literature is found in the book of Daniel. It is designed to encourage us with the promise that, that God will bring all things to a righteous and good end, and, the just, and his justice will prevail, and his people will be with him forever. Is this not the point of the book of Revelation? We see later on when we get to chapters 11 and 12 of the book of Hebrews just how motivating uh, heaven becomes then for God's saints. Well, we establish that heaven is a real place, the most desirable place one could ever be, and a powerful motivating force for godly living. There's much more that we could say about heaven, but of course this is not a message about heaven it's not a series on heaven. But how the argument for Jesus' superior priesthood centers on two realities that are connected to heaven. That's really what this is about. In that case, there is one particular thought about heaven that I want to introduce to you this morning that will help, help you make this connection and, and better prepare us for our text this morning. I I have talked about it on many occasions from this pulpit in 
different contexts, and it bears repeating both for our understanding and our application of chapter 8. I might state it this way. Live according to the heavenly king, live according to heavenly kingdom principles. Live according to heavenly kingdom principles. Live out your lives on earth as you would as you will live them in heaven someday that's another way of saying it live out your lives on earth as you will live them in heaven someday that's perhaps the simplest way that i can put it live your lives on earth as you will live them in heaven now what do i mean by this obviously being uh, heaven being a completely different realm and atmosphere from our earthly one means that there are some things that we will be engaged in there that we cannot be engaged in here. And there are activities here, even godly ones, such as evangelism, that we are called to do here that we will not do there. But more generally speaking, when I say live out your lives on earth as you will in heaven someday, I mean live redeemed resurrected lives according to heavenly kingdom principles. Because you are born again, and you are citizens of that kingdom. Therefore, you must live that way. Now, your identity is rooted in Christ, who is in heaven. You see, heaven, in heaven, I should say, living is better. Living is better. That's an understatement. Living is perfect. There's no question that a heavenly existence is better than what we know and experience now on earth. No question whatsoever. A heavenly existence is the epitome of our earthly existence that we know and experience now as Christians. All the joy and the and, and the wonderful experiences, the, the communion with God and the communion with saints, all of that would be, will be heightened, exalted to a perfect kind of, of activity. All the virtues and the fruit of the Spirit, Christian fellowship, communion with God that we experience now, because of being in Christ, we will enjoy all of that perfectly in heaven. Now, this is why we find throughout the New Testament a call to strive to be what we have become positionally in Christ, which is perfect. If you are going to be perfect in heaven, then strive for that perfection now in your personal life by God's grace and by all the divine means of enablement that God has provided. If you are perfect or going to have perfect fellowship with the saints in heaven, then strive as much as you can And as far as it is possible for you to do so, enjoy that level of fellowship with the saints now. If we, as the church, a local church, are going to be a perfect bride for Christ and function perfectly as a body in heaven, well then we ought to strive to conduct ourselves in this church in that way now. What I'm, what I'm driving at is this. Because heaven is a real place where God dwells and rules, and those of us who are born again are there already positionally in Christ, and it is better, a better, far better kingdom than an earthly kingdom, then let's carry on as if we were there now. 
let's live out a heavenly existence on this earth. What does that mean, practically speaking? Well, it means that we are first Christians before we're anything else. So we are willing to do God's will even if it defies, let's say, human law. Divine, divine law will trump, or divine will trumps human will. And I'm not talking just about civil disobedience, but in all areas of life. We are loyal to Christ before we're loyal to anyone else. If our, if our loyalty to Christ manifests itself in disloyalty to friends, in disloyalty to family, in disloyalty to business associates, at least from their point of view, well then so be it. Our concern is that we're loyal to Christ. Because that's how we will be depicted in heaven someday. When Paul says in Colossians 3, we heard it read rather aptly, I might say, this morning in our scripture reading, if then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Well, he means that we are to seek God's way, the way of heaven, the way of God's kingdom, in order to run our lives now, here on this earth. The rest of the epistle shows specifically how those minds are set on things above. You have to just read the rest of the epistle to see. It's very specific. How heavenly-minded people live a heavenly existence on this earth. It shows all of that. Now, I know, I know, I know you know what I, what I mean because you pray very much according to this principle. You pray this way, right? We, we find in Jesus' model prayer in Matthew 6 that that, that is what, uh, what topic should really be included in our praying to the Father uh, is this one important line in verse 6, you, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're, we're taught to pray that way, and, and I'm assuming you pray that way. What does that mean? Well, Leon Morris explains in his commentary on Matthew Quote, in heaven, God's will is perfectly done now, for there is nothing in heaven to hinder it. And the prayer looks for a similar state of affairs here on this earth. End quote. I think that's a rather nice summary. We are to pray for God's will, which is in heaven, and that his will in heaven would be manifest now, here on this earth, just the way it is in heaven. God, God rules in heaven, and his rule in heaven is meted out on earth, you know, through committed believers who obey his will. If he rules them, as he, when he rules them, he rules them now and rules in them now as he rules in heaven. So what does all of this talk of heaven, and specifically living out your lives on earth as you will in heaven someday, have to do with our passage this morning? In Hebrews chapter 8. Well, a great deal, actually. In the first five verses of chapter 8, the writer stresses the fact that what really makes Jesus' priesthood better than the Levitical priesthood is that everything Jesus is and everything Jesus does is connected to a heavenly sanctuary. Jesus is God, 
and he is a divine priest. He carries out his priestly or his priesthood specifically in heaven, before a heavenly sanctuary. The only earthly aspect about it all is the are the results that it has for us now in our earthly state. That's it. So what do we know about this heavenly sanctuary or this heavenly temple? Well, we have some indication from the book of Revelation. John tells us in Revelation 21, verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So that is not an admission that there isn't a temple in heaven. It is an admission of a specific kind of temple in heaven, specifically the Lord uh, and the Lamb are the temple. What we're to believe is that there's no structure of a temple per se, but the Lord himself and the Son make up the heavenly temple, and the Lord spreads his temple all over heaven. In fact, we might even argue that all of heaven is God's temple, and we who will be there someday are the pillars We worship the very presence of the Lord, not before an altar, not in a building, but in the very presence of God himself. And within that Trinitarian presence, there is the ongoing elements of a royal priesthood that are satisfied. I really cannot tell you anything more than that, because I don't know. This is something that's much too wonderful for me. But let me explain it in other words, if I may. God had always planned, listen very carefully, God had always planned to commune with his saints intimately and personally through and by means of a royal priesthood of the second member of the Trinity whom we know as Jesus Christ. Always planned that. From eternity past, it was in the plans of God. We might say that that was the ideal God's plan was to save a people for himself by the shed blood of Jesus and his continued resurrected presence at the right hand of God the Father would be intended to keep them saved forever. True worshipers in heaven will always be accepted then into the presence of God because of being in Christ. We have his righteousness and we have his holiness imputed to us. All right, so far so good. Of course, although this was a good uh, was as good as done from God's perspective in eternity. God has God has the ability to see everything all at once. A snapshot of the of of the very beginning uh, if we can talk about eternity in those terms before the beginning in eternity past and and the very end of of human history and and now the eternal state and and far beyond in eternity future all at the same time. That's because he's God. And so, and so this understanding of redemption and, and a, an intimate relationship on the basis of redemption was always the intention of God. It was as good as done from God's perspective. But he would have to bring it into human history, into fulfillment in, in human history. And he did around 4 BC with the birth of Jesus, who would go on to, to finish, his, finish his work and sit down at the right hand of God the Father. All right? We all know that 
All New Testament believers commune then with God on the basis of Jesus' redemptive work that he secured before a heavenly sanctuary and his ongoing mediation in heaven. But what about the Old Testament believers? How could God commune with them on the same basis if Jesus hadn't come yet and fulfilled this reality? Well, the answer to that is twofold. The first part of the answer is that God could do, could do so as he looked ahead to the redemptive work that Jesus would ultimately accomplish and, and, and deal with Old Testament saints retroactively. The second part of the answer is that until that happened, he would establish a prototype of this wonderful heavenly priesthood on earth, a prototype for the Old Testament saints to practice. This prototype of the real one that was to come later would teach true believers back then several truths. It would teach them, for example, that the real work on which their redemption and standing before God was based uh, is based on a heavenly reality that is yet to come. That sacrificial system helped them to understand just how, God, how holy God was and that there was only one way or one approach to God. It taught them the significance of the blood of a perfect substitute and the need of an intermediary to represent them to God. Taught them all of that. And just as important, the sacrificial system, along with its priesthood, allowed these Old Testament believers to anticipate this wonderful, divine, and heavenly priesthood to come. Now, in case you were wondering where all that is stated, we find in Exodus 25, where God is talking to Moses, and in verses 8 and 9 of Exodus 25, we read this. God speaking, Have them construct a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, so you shall construct it. He reiterates again, way down in verse 40, of chapter 25, see that you make them by the pattern for them which was shown to you on the mountain. Well, from this point on, the rest of Exodus gives painstaking details of all the pieces of furniture that would go into the tabernacle. At some point, we're not told when, but at some point, while Moses was on the mountaintop communing with God, he received a glimpse of this heavenly sanctuary that was the real means by which God saved a people for himself and communed with them. The real thing on which our redemption is based and on which the Old Testament's saints' redemption is based. So you need to see that the heavenly sanctuary with the kind of priesthood that Jesus assumed, is the ideal. It's the ideal. It would become reality at Jesus' first coming. Until then, the Old Testament saints informed, uh, were informed about it, and they anticipated, they understood that there, that there is 
that, that, that Messiah would redeem them in this way. And in the meantime, until it came, they were to construct a prototype of this real heavenly sanctuary. Their prototype would be a human construction at best, operated, maintained, and administered by human priests who were themselves sinners that would, would not redeem them. It would not take away their sin or have any power to establish communion with God. No. Their, theirs was a sanctuary that pointed to the heavenly sanctuary that did all that with a royal priesthood, with an eternal priesthood, with a better sacrifice that would accomplish all of this. This prototype on earth simply pointed to that ideal sanctuary in heaven. Now with that in mind, as we come to our text, it's a long introduction, hopefully it's prepared us enough to understand the text before us. We're in just verses 1 to 5. And what we see here is that Christ's superior ministry is before a heavenly sanctuary. And that heavenly sanctuary is one of the realities, one of the realities of heaven that runs through and undergirds all of the proofs and arguments about Jesus' superior priesthood. So with that, let's look at the text and see just how Jesus' superior ministry uh, is 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 superior uh, because of its connection with the heavenly sanctuary. First, uh, there are there are four uh, truths that I want to bring out to you. First is this: Jesus is the priest of a better sanctuary. It's just stated right out at the very beginning. Jesus is the priest of a better sanctuary. Verses one and two. Let's read those. Now, the the main point. Is what it, in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary that is the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, not man. I have to say that it's not often that <clears throat> writers of, of biblical books actually will tell you the exact point that they are making. Usually you have to deduce that. Uh, or infer it by the study of the grammar and the syntax and the context of the passage. So when the writer does tell you what the point is, it is a precious gift. The writer of the Hebrews tells us what the main point of this section on Jesus' superior priesthood, uh, which began back in seven, chapter 7, verse 1, is. The point. The first two verses are really a summary of what he had just stated back in chapter uh, 7, the very end, uh, where he contrasts Jesus with the earthly priests of the Levitical order. He says, unlike them, verse 26, Jesus continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently, able to save forever those who come to God through him, because he always lives to make intercession for them. He's holy and innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, he has no daily need, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all time when he offered up himself. God appointed with an oath a son who has been made perfect forever. Now this great summary in 
back in 7, verses 25 and 26, is what is what the author is referring to in chapter 8, verse 1, when he says, we have such a high priest. This, this wonderful description of this royal and divine son, this priest, we have such a high priest. We have this kind of high priest in Jesus. In chapter 8, verse 1, he tells us that Jesus has taken his seat at the right hand in the throne of the majesty in heaven, in the heavens. Uh, this is a reminder that Jesus' priestly ministry is, a, is divine, it's royal, it, it harks back, if you remember, to the opening words of Psalm 110, where the Son is set up on the Lord's throne. He is a, a king priest, which was unheard of and quite unique in Israel. And as God's son, he is divine. He himself is God. And, is div- and, is, and this divine priest, according to verse 2, ministers God's true tabernacle in heaven. We see here a direct reference to the heavenly sanctuary that the Lord himself set up. So Jesus is the priest of a better sanctuary because that sanctuary is in heaven. Direct connection to heaven. That's the first truth. Here's the second one. A better sanctuary calls for a better sacrifice. Jesus' ministry is superior because it's tied to a heavenly sanctuary, and that heavenly sanctuary calls for a better sacrifice. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. We know, as does the writer's audience by now, that Jesus' sacrifice was infinitely better than any of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant for several reasons. It was of himself, a human sacrifice, where those of the Levitical order were animal sacrifices. Also, Jesus' sacrifice accomplished redemption, where those of the Levitical order could not take away sin. Also, his sacrifice pleased the Father's just demands. Therefore, It was the sacrifice to end all Levitical sacrifices. And finally, Jesus' sacrifice was the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices. Or we could say it this way. The Old Testament sacrifices anticipated Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. So, this heavenly sanctuary called for a better sacrifice, which only Jesus could make. Third truth, Jesus is fit only to serve before the heavenly sanctuary. That's in verse 4. Jesus is fit only to serve before the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, This is the positive way of saying what verse 4 states negatively. It says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. So Jesus, in other words, was never eligible to be a priest under the old Levitical order because he wasn't a Levite. He was born of the tribe of Judah. The law would prevent Jesus from ever being a high priest in the Levitical order. But by the same token, we might also say that no Levitical priest, or high priest for that matter, was ever qualified for this divine heavenly sanctuary. Jesus was overqualified for the Levitical priesthood, and the Levites were underqualified to officiate at the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus was the only one eligible for a divine royal priesthood at the heavenly sanctuary. He alone 
was after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is fit only to serve before this heavenly sanctuary. Finally, last truth, number four, his sanctuary established and fulfilled the earthly one. And here's where we get really back to the crux of the matter. Look at verse 5. Who served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things by the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. This last aspect of the text tells us what we've already argued in some detail in our introduction. The Old Testament tabernacle and the temple that eventually replaced it were merely earthly, man-made copies of the real one in heaven that God revealed to Moses on the mountaintop. And the writer essentially says to this audience that there are two ways that you consider the relationship between the two, that is, the heavenly sanctuary and the earthly one. There are two ways to look at it. One way is to see the earthly sanctuary that was the model after the pattern of the heavenly one as the superior one, if you can believe that. After all, Moses built it according to the detailed specifications that God gave him. This view seems backwards, right? It, it does, but that became the popular view with many Jews, uh, and, and, and they entertained it soon after the exile, and actually championed it by the time Jesus came on the scene. They would have told you that the heavenly tabernacle that Moses saw was the prototype for the earthly one. But because prototype usually means a preliminary model, something that anticipates a newer, better model, this vantage point is not correct. The heavenly, the heavenly tabernacle could not have been the prototype for the earthly one. It is not that at all. In fact, it is really the other way around. Right? The earthly tabernacle was a copy of the real one. And for those who never saw the real one in heaven, the earthly one was, in a sense, the prototype for the real one that Jesus would eventually make reality for God's people. You follow? So, in this way, the heavenly sanctuary was not only the model for the earthly copy, but it was also the fulfillment of the earthly copy later on, when Jesus uh, comes and makes it reality. That's why we don't sacrifice, as Christians, at a temple anymore. We don't need to. Temple's in heaven. Jesus officiated for us once for all by his death. It reminded God's people then that a heavenly one, this earthly sanctuary, would be reality for them once Messiah came. That's really what it was there for. Now the writer says to his audience essentially this, look, it's important that you have the right perspective on the relationship between the earthly and the heavenly sanctuaries. You have to have the right relationship so that you don't harm the practice of your faith. If, on the one hand, you treat the Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple as the perfect expression of God's redemptive plan, then you're going to deceive yourselves and drift away from the truth. 
If, on the other hand, you treat the Old Testament tabernacle, and later the temple, as the man-made copy that is designed to point God's people to a greater sanctuary and God's redemptive plans by means of that sanctuary, then you will remain centered on God's truth and you'll build up your faith. Obviously, there were some in the writer's audience who, who were waving, a wavering between the right perspective and the wrong perspective. Some of them believe. Some of those believers uh, were maybe giving into the pressure of uh, of compromising, and others among them, unbelievers, who were perhaps on the verge of believing, but had started to drift back toward what they were comfortable with, and that would be looking at the uh, the, the earthly tabernacle as the ideal. <clears throat> Well, let me corral our thoughts in a way that might help us to see the practical import of what the writer's words are and and how we might apply them as we draw this to a close. Again, just just to summarize, we argued that God's ideal is in heaven. It's there. It always has been. And it and it was to become reality in the lives of true worshipers at a particular time in history. Until then, until that time, and leading up to that time, God saw fit to give those Old Testament believers whose redemption and standing before God was based on the ideal that was yet to come, gave them a copy of that ideal that would not only teach them more about what is necessary to commune with a holy God, it would remind them of this ideal that was yet to come and that was the true basis of their salvation in communion with God. Now every Hebrew who was a true believer knew this. He knew his theology. He knew the difference between the copy and the original and the significance between the two. Some some uh, somewhere along the line, Hebrews switched the two in terms of their meaning and significance. They believed that Moses' copy of the original was the superior model, and with that wrong view came also the belief that it was the man-made version that was the basis of their salvation, their right standing, and their communion with God. The Jewish sects that eventually rose up and had variations on this theme, they, they also were guilty of this very same thing. They mistook the copy for the original. And whatever the, the, re, the original uh, did, they believed the copy did. Now, when it came time to fulfill what the copy pointed to, the real eternal priesthood of Messiah, who would officiate at the real heavenly sanctuary, offer himself as the only acceptable sacrifice that literally took away the sins of God's people, many Jews were skeptical, as you can imagine. This is the point of, the, uh, of contention that the writer to the Hebrews has with his audience. The Jewish Christians who were who are compromising, and some unbelieving Jews among them who had begun to drift away from the truth and from solid displays of a transformed life uh, from, from genuine believers of this church, were both guilty of putting confidence in the copy instead of the original 
to which it pointed. We Christians are unlikely to gravitate toward Judaism or any element of Judaism in any form. Certainly not if we're genuinely born again. We know better. I don't think there's any danger really of that or or, or, or of, of trying to establish some kind of sacrificial system or, or even priesthood. But that doesn't mean that we're not tempted to throw aside God's original sacred way of living and thinking for its cheaper copies and counterfeits. For example, the gospel. Think about the gospel. There's the ideal laid out in scripture. And then there is the man-made, watered-down, contaminated versions, some bearing no resemblance at all to the real gospel and some coming real close but still only resembling the genuine message. There are a number of explanations for these unholy variations in the gospel message. Some are the result of compromise. Some are, are made out of fear of causing offense or out of a desire to make it more receivable, maybe. But in the end, none of them, none of them is the real gospel and none of them possesses the words of eternal life. We do this also when our ideas of marriage are not in line with the ideal outlined in the Bible. So illegitimate divorce is more prevalent in the church and more unhealthy unions are prevalent in the church as well. The same could be true for parenting. Now for the first time in American history, uh, Christianity rather, we have theories of social justice, critical race theory, that distorts God's ideal for biblical relationships. And they're becoming more popular by the day. We could take really any part of life that God has ordered in his word from heaven that he specified as the ideal way of expressing it and see where and how Christians uh, veer off from it and, and settle for worldly versions. We can go anywhere, any aspect of life. In light of our passage, we might ask ourselves, do we think too much about the here and now, the copies, and not enough about the heavenly reality? Do we? Are we more concerned at times with perhaps what shapes our lives, what shape our lives might take here on this earth rather than, than what they will look like in heaven and therefore we should strive to live that way now? I wonder if we're often not guilty of placing too much stock and hope in the temporary, the earthly, and buy into the world's perception or perspective of living instead of an eternal perspective on things. What do I mean by that? Well, doing what we can to preserve the quality of our lives instead of living holy lives even at the expense of the quality of our lives. Or perhaps striving to make our mark in this world instead of asking if God will approve of my work when I stand before him. Or how people will remember me instead of asking how the Lord will receive me. Or asking what kind of contribution will I have made before I die in this world. 
instead of asking, how well have I invested in the kingdom of heaven before I get there? Or what kind of legacy will I leave behind? Instead of asking, in what ways have I advanced the kingdom of heaven? Wondering how we might spend our precious time enjoying the things that we have, more than seeking to redeem them before we use them up. Our perspective is not eschatological enough, beloved, most of the time. It is not divine enough. We don't have an eternal perspective on things the way we ought to most of the time. We need to develop that, especially now and all that's taking place in our country and around the world. The Apostle Paul shows the strong connection between what will, what will be true of us in heaven someday and how we are to live in light of that truth now in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. Let his words be our closing thoughts. Brothers and sisters, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even as I weep, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, and who have their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Our Father, we are grateful for your